Okay, so we're going to read uh, probably about the hardest passage in Matthew, where Jesus talks to the Pharisees. And he's just very direct. And it's just interesting the way that he would choose to intervene in uh, this problem. And I, and I think part of the reason that he's uh, so uh, direct and really seems quite hard on them, and I think I made this point before, is that um, everyone was kind of under the, their spell or delusion that this was really the ultimate of what it meant to be a religious person. And even the disciples, you know, they didn't want to offend the Pharisees. They had a high opinion of the Pharisees. And so um, I think Jesus, what we're going to read here, it's almost like he, he has to break through. He just needs to make a strong contrast. What you see in the Pharisees, um, this is not it. Okay, And I'm just going to make it uh, very plain that this is not it. Okay, so Jesus spoke to the crowds in Matthew 23.1 and to his disciples. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are the authorized interpreters of Moses' law, perhaps the self-authorized interpreters. So you must obey and follow everything they tell you to do. Do not, however, imitate their actions, because they don't practice what they preach. They tie on the people's backs loads that are heavy and hard to carry, yet they aren't willing even to lift a finger to help them carry those loads. They do everything so that people will see them. Look at the straps with scripture verses on them, which they wear on their foreheads and arms, and notice how large they are. And this is from a few uh, passages in the Old Testament where there are commands to you know, tie the words of the Lord to your arm and to your forehead. And this was taken literally, and so uh, these were called phylacteries, where they actually, and you can still see this today, have the verses of scripture strapped around the forehead or on the arm. Notice also how long are the tassels on their cloaks. They love the best places at feasts and the reserved seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them teacher or rabbi. But you must not be called teacher because you are all equal and have only one teacher. And you must not call anyone here on earth father because you have only one father in heaven. Nor should you be called leader because your one and only leader is the Messiah. The greatest one among you must be your servant. This is kind of our subject last time. It's just amazing. You can't read very long in the Gospels without coming across this. That the kingdom of God, it's not like this. Leader, father, teacher, and a chain that goes down you know, in order from there. The greatest must be the servant. And to make it believable, you know, again, Jesus, the greatest, became the suffering servant. To really show us, that's it. That's what the kingdom looks like. So again, whoever makes himself great will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be made great. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You lock the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, but you yourselves don't go in, nor do you allow in those who are trying to enter. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You sail the seas and cross whole countries to win one convert. And when you succeed, you make him twice as deserving of going to hell as you yourselves are. Okay, so they're serious. I mean, they're, they're taking the Bible in a very serious way. They've got the scriptures, you know, scrapped to their forehead. In other places, Jesus said, you know, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. So they were reading the Bible. They were very serious about it. Here we even see mission work. Okay, they're sending missionaries around to win converts. Okay, so, so it isn't that, uh, that they're lazy here. It would seem like they're, they're actively doing things. 
But Jesus continues, How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give to God one-tenth, even of the seasoning herbs, such as mint and dill, but you neglect to obey the really important teachings of the law. So they're, they're even extremely careful, I mean, to even tithe the seeds. Okay, that's, that's being extremely careful. Okay? But you neglect the more important teachings of the law. Now, interesting, what are the more important teachings of the law? Such as justice and mercy and honesty. These you should practice without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain a fly out of your drink, but swallow a camel. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you clean the outside of your cup and plate, while the inside is full of what you have gotten by violence and selfishness. Notice what's on the inside. Violence and selfishness. And how difficult it must have been for them to hear when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. You know, and he said, you've heard it said, and he went through that long list, and one of them was, uh, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, if you even hate your brother. And so, you know, again, you can have violence in your heart and not necessarily, uh, you know, outwardly be, be carrying out on that. And he, he read through them and saw, inside, it's violence and selfishness. Blind Pharisee, clean what is inside the cup first, and then the outside will be clean too. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look fine on the outside. Again, you notice their whole, uh, everything for them is the externals. Okay, the outside of the cup is clean. Uh, the outside looks like whitewashed tombs, which look fine, but are full of bones and decaying corpses on the inside. In the same way, on the outside, you appear good to everybody, but inside, you are full of hypocrisy and sins. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You make fine tunes for the prophets and decorate the monuments of those who lived good lives. And you claim that if you had lived during the time of your ancestors, you would not have done what they did and killed the prophets. So you actually admit that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go on then and finish up what your ancestors started. Okay, so again, for everyone there watching this, it was very clear, here's Jesus' impression of the, the common, you know, the religious leaders and, and the kind of teachings that they were propagating. So it's, it, is it much of a mystery here why they hated Jesus, why he was crucified? I mean, you know, this would be really hard to take. Okay, so uh, what I want to kind of talk about here, which we brought up um, briefly times before, is just this uh, focus on the externals here, cleaning the outside of the cup. And again, the things they were doing, um, at least a lot of the externals, we wouldn't say this is wrong. These are good things, right? Reading the Bible, taking that very seriously, paying tithe, external devotion to God, careful observance of the things that God has asked us to do, even things like mission work, okay? So these are, these are fine things uh, that, that can be an important part of our religious experience. But Jesus is here saying you can do all of those things and you can still be God's enemy. You can do all of these things externally, but there, there's something more. There's something that has to happen on the inside. Okay, and if all that is happening on the outs is on the outside, well, we can even see the, the misrepresentation of God that can take place. Okay, so we're, we're talking about legalism here. Okay, the, they're working very hard to do what God had commanded, and in their minds, that was the road, that was the way, that's how you get to heaven. So Paul would kind of summarize 
this mindset in Romans 10, where he said, My friends, how I wish with all my heart that my own people, the Jews, might be saved. How I pray to God for them. I can assure you that they are deeply devoted to God. They're clearly deeply devoted. But their devotion is not based on true knowledge. They have not known the way in which God puts people right with himself. And instead, they have tried to set up their own way. What was their own way? It was, again, a legalistic kind of a, a formula. They did not submit themselves to God's way of putting people right. For Christ has brought the law to an end so that everyone who believes is put right with God. Okay, now, how, does, how do we understand this? Christ has brought the law to an end, so now we can murder and steal and do all kinds of things because the law is at an end. Well, I like the versions that translate this. Christ has brought the law or the law as a means to salvation to an end. Now notice, what is the right path? So that everyone who believes or trusts in God is put right with God. Okay, but here I'm just trying to identify a little more um, the problem. It was the wrong way. Okay, the law, the, the means of getting right with God through keeping a list, that uh, that is not the right way. Okay, and then just a third example on this is the man who came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to receive eternal life? Now, can you do a good thing to receive eternal life? It's interesting the way he asked it. What good thing must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you ask me concerning what is good? And if we were to read this in Luke, um, he called Jesus good teacher, and Jesus said, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Okay, but here in Matthew, Jesus said, why do you ask me concerning what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, it's interesting. How would you answer this question? If someone said to you, what good thing must I do to receive eternal life? You know, how would you respond? Wouldn't it be something like, well, put your faith in Jesus, accept what Jesus has done for you? Um, you know, some variation of that. Okay. How does Jesus respond? Hey, is this what we would say, this is what you need to do to receive eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments if you want to enter life. Now, wouldn't this just feed into his mindset? What good thing must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus essentially said, keep the commandments. Okay, so what is Jesus doing here? So the man said, what commandments? And Jesus answered a list he was very familiar with. Do not commit murder. Do not, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not accuse anyone falsely, respect your father and mother, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, and so the man said, well, I have obeyed all these commandments. But he seemed to think that wasn't quite it. What else do I need to do? So again, it's just curious that, uh, you know, here you'd think, boy, we're going to get it straight. What do we need from Jesus? What do we need to do to receive eternal life? And Jesus' answer is keep the commandments. Okay, so it's a little bit puzzling. But then Jesus said to him, Well, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor. Then you will have riches in heaven. And then come and follow me. And of course, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he was very rich. Okay, so Jesus identified um, the problem. But again, we want to come back and say, Jesus responds here. Keep the commandments. Okay, what other good thing must I do? Okay, go sell everything that you have, give to the poor, then come and follow me. Um, so I think I think there are several things um, going on here, but but one answer I like here is that this is a legalistic 
um, framework that this man has, isn't it? What good thing must I do to receive eternal life? What do I do? And Jesus makes it completely unattainable. First he says, well, keep the list. And the man said, well, I've done that. And then Jesus said, go and sell everything that you have. Now, just imagine that the man had done that. He went, he sold everything that he had, and then he came back to Jesus and said, okay, now, what other good thing must I do? And Jesus might have said, okay, you're still playing this game, huh? Well, go love your enemy and then come back. And, uh, you know, it's, can, you, can you see Jesus is just making it completely unattainable? There's no good thing you can do. Okay, yes, he identified, I think, what was the root of the man's problem. But he's essentially out-legalizing a legalist. Okay, he's making it unattainable to legally keep a list um, to attain, um, obtain eternal life. So he's going beyond what the man could possibly obtain and just telling him that's completely the wrong path to take. Okay, so out-legalizing the legalist. And then Jesus went on to say, I assure you it will be very hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. I repeat, it is much harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And when the disciples heard this, they were completely amazed. Who then can be saved? They asked. And Jesus looked straight at them and answered, This is impossible for human beings, but for God everything is possible. So what is Jesus doing here? Um, the, it's again important to always identify the mindset of the people that Jesus is talking to. And in their mind, if you're rich and healthy, by definition, you're blessed by God, you're in good shape. Okay, so if the rich here, if, if in the disciples' mind, well, if the rich aren't automatically going to heaven, then who can possibly be saved? Okay, because uh, remember that the Pharisees, anytime if you had leprosy, if you were sick, you were cursed by God. You were rich, if you were healthy. This is the kind of the contrast in the rich man and Lazarus story and how unthinkable it was that the rich man would go to the wrong place and that the poor suffering Lazarus would go to the right place. Okay, and so what Jesus is saying here is not making a point that rich people cannot be saved. He's saying that rich people by their riches, but not by using their riches, cannot be saved. Because there's nothing a rich person could do to, to buy your way you know, into heaven. So it's not uh, really making a point about um, someone that has money can't be saved, but it's more has to do with the, the works. Notice, it's impossible for human beings. Impossible. Okay, there's nothing, no good work. Okay, and even in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, uh, you know, even if I give my body to be burned, okay, in, in sacrifice, that, no, there's something still even higher. So it's impossible for human beings. That's that's the point. But for God, everything is possible. Okay, so, again, who needs rules? And who needs rules? Well, rebels need rules. The dangerous thing is when, um, in our religion, that we have attached primarily to the rules as the end all. In First Timothy, it must be remembered, of course, that laws are made not for good people, but for lawbreakers and criminals, for the godless and sinful, for those who are not religious or spiritual, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the immoral, for sexual perverts, for kidnappers, for those who lie and give false testimony or do anything else contrary to sound doctrine. So this is quite a list here, but uh, what are the rules for? The rules, just like you have a child. Kids need lots and lots of rules. 
Okay, because they're at a stage of immaturity, um, it's just necessary. You know, if, if medical school here were just full of, um, you know, IV heroin use in the back row and guns being brought into class and all kinds of things, what would happen? Rules would multiply very quickly, right? Okay, so rebels need lots and lots of rules. But the, the point of the rules is to lead us to some maturity, okay, to the point that you don't need the rules anymore. Okay, so I would be very sad if my kids, when they go off to college, need the rules that they have right now at age 10 and 12. Okay, that would be uh, discouraging as a parent. They haven't grown up. They still need those rules. You have to brush your teeth at nighttime and, and those kinds of things. Um, no, that those rules no longer apply. You just do it, those kinds of things, because it makes sense. Don't need dad there telling you. You have to do it. Okay, so again, it's sad when the, the religious, the deeply religious, are focused primarily on the rules, which were meant to lead to something much better. So what doesn't get you to heaven, if we want to put it that way? Keeping the law, although we should, okay, but that's not the means. Good works, what good work must I do? And um, in the story, even the evidence of God's blessings, such as riches, health, things like that, um, this is not a not a ticket, or if you're rich or healthy, that, uh, that you're in. Okay, but again, that was their mindset. So, forms of legalism. One would be, what good work must I do? And I think what would be very challenging, again, if the, the list is the main thing for us, if the list of the do's and the don'ts and keeping the right list is the main thing, uh, we'll make a list out of Jesus' commands. And you will um, it become rather discouraged don't look at a woman in a lustful way. Do not even hate. Do not even want to do wrong. Love your enemies. Do not judge others. And um, I've often found it interesting that the, the, the very intense legalism, um, when I have encountered that, almost never incorporates these rules. Okay, it incorporates uh, maybe certain things about dress and diet and day of worship and, and all of those things. Okay, Again, not to put down those things, but it usually does not incorporate some of these repeated, frequent commands of Jesus. And in fact, uh, if legalism is, is a priority for us, usually there's a judgmental, condemning picture of God. We're working very hard to keep the rules so that he's happy with us. And as a natural part of that, we tend to judge and condemn everyone around us. So if we're making a list, you got to keep this one there, too. Don't judge others. That should be an important one on the list. So what is a Pharisee? Well, one definition is a self-righteous legalist who judge and condemn others. And what I need to be very careful here is, is I am talking about Pharisees because I realized many years ago that, uh, maybe not that many years ago, but I realized that in my own mind, thinking of Pharisaical individuals, what is very easy to happen is that you become a Pharisee. And it's called an anti-Pharisee Pharisee. You become self-righteous and condemn the self-righteous. Okay, and so it just gets into this nasty uh, um, kind of a circular thing here. So don't be an anti-Pharisee Pharisee. Don't become self-righteous and pray, thank goodness that I am not like those Pharisees. As the Pharisees pray, thank goodness I am not like these sinners. Okay, so it's easy to become an anti-Pharisee Pharisee. We want to love the Pharisees and Forms of legalism. The second I would say, and we need to, to spend more time on this, it's probably dangerous to say just a few words about it, 
is um, viewing salvation primarily as a legal transaction. Uh, perhaps better said, um, an unhealthy obsession with my legal standing before God and incorporating most of, you know, getting to heaven and all of that as a legal matter. Okay, now there certainly is legal language in the Bible. And um, a couple of years ago when we went through Romans, we really spent a long time talking about all of that. So the, the legal metaphors, that's, those are important. But uh, we are not primarily in, in legal, in poor legal standing with God. We're in poor relational standing with God. And I think uh, if we're obsessed, how am I doing legally? Am I in good legal standing today? Um, that can be a form of legalism. Okay, so how it's, um, how it's sometimes described is, well, we are rotten to the core, rotten apples, okay, but we're covered by something, okay? Blood, usually, is the, the description. We're, we're covered, and so legally, you know, when God looks at us, he doesn't really see us. He sees someone else who's in between, who can be described as shielding us from God's wrath. Now, we're, we're hopelessly rotten, but at least we're, we're covered. And so that, that is one model of understanding things. Um, but the emphasis so much in the Bible is on transformation. I mean, just what we read in Jesus' words, it's clean the inside of the cup. Okay, not the outside. It's transformation. And so the words, uh, let's make sure at least that we incorporate other ways of describing it. And what is so dominant in the Gospels is eternal life is to know God, the relationship, the marriage metaphor, as a very dominant theme um, as well. Okay, because the, the, the means of salvation, if we see God here and us here and someone in between and God doesn't really see us, um, that is actually an effective way of, of breaking the relationship. Okay, God doesn't really see us. He doesn't really know who we are. He just is pleased that there's something in between and we get in the back door of heaven somehow. Okay, what, what I see described again and again is a very intimate personal relationship. As we've said so many times, eternal life is to know God. Adam knew Eve. They had a son. It's intimacy. It's relationship. So however we describe it, uh, let's just be careful not, not to break that in any way between us and God. The, the word atonement in the King James Bible is used only one time. And it's this verse in Romans 5.11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Okay, what does the word atonement mean? Um, and several people uh, have, have done some really good work on this, that it really is at one It is bringing two things together. And if just, uh, I would encourage you to look at other translations of Romans 5.11 in the uh, recent English Standard Version. version. Through Christ, who, through whom we have received reconciliation. Again, it's bringing us closer to God. In the Good News Bible, um, through Lord Jesus Christ, who has made us God's friends. In the God's Words translation, all this through Christ, that we now have this restored relationship with God. So the atonement has to do with the relationship that is restored. Okay, and as I said, there's so much emphasis on transformation. I think one danger of primarily just going entirely with a legal model of understanding things is that that can cut off anything uh, transformative that happens within us. So I won't read these through maybe again, but last time I'm just bringing up some things we talked about recently. 
that uh, as Jesus interpreted the parable of the farmer that went out with the seeds, okay, remember the, the, the idea here was really uh, a, an internal transformation. So if they would look and see, but their minds are dull, they've stopped up their ears, they've closed up their eyes, but if they would open them and understand, they would turn to me and I would heal them. Okay, God's uh, ideal is really, again, to work something within us to heal and reform. And they, those people in the parable, they bear fruit. Okay, there's, there is a change. And the, we gave the example of the yeast, the yeast that works itself throughout the whole dough, okay, which causes the bread to rise. That's describing something, again, wonderful that happens within us. And the example of the mustard seed, once it gets planted in, a whole tree grows. Okay, there are just dozens and dozens of stories like this that say we are changed in the process. Now, what can become dangerous is then we become perfectionists and we begin to work on, well, I've got to become this tree. Okay, but um, no, it's, it's a natural process. It's nothing that we do. Once we receive the message, we rejoice in it. Um, it's, it's unavoidable. Okay, it's a natural consequence. I think we could use another example. Here's some uh, difficult words of Jesus in John 6. Where Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And I will raise them to life on the last day. For my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me and I live in them. And you remember what a hard teaching this was for the people. Now, who can understand this? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Of course, he's not talking about cannibalism, right? There's a meaning here. And uh, the, the point here is when we talk about the blood um, of Jesus, that we want it on the inside. Okay, Meaning, just like you drink something, you eat something, it goes through the stomach, it gets diffused throughout the entire body, it becomes a part of you. Okay, So here, Jesus associates eating my flesh, drinking my blood with eternal life. And of course, when he's in the upper room, privately with the disciples, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. And how do we know God? Through Jesus Christ. So, um, again, it's perhaps here, and we should talk sometimes about why Jesus talked in ways that were difficult for people to understand, but it is an internalization of everything about Jesus. It just becomes a part of us. Okay, and uh, so much in the New Testament, I'll just bring up two verses about the transformation that is supposed to happen in 2 Corinthians. Whenever they turn their face to God, as Moses did, God removes the veil, and there they are, face to face. Again, that's the ideal, face to face with God. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. Nothing between us and God. Our face is shining with the brightness of his face, and so we are transfigured, much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Okay, we, just, we just can't ignore um, the redundant number of verses about this, that as we come to know God, it's a natural process that we become like him. So again, the danger here is, then, if we read enough of these verses, um, it's very easy just to have the thought, well, am I healing? Am I loving my enemy? Am I doing better than I was six months ago? And then you begin to worry. What if you don't really notice much of a change? And uh, so I think these are <laughs> very easy. We could take our eyes off of Christ and begin to look at 
myself and how am I doing? And I, on this one, I just like the example here of the thief on the cross. Uh, what good things did he do? Uh, well, we don't have a list of any. Okay, all he did was he saw the one hanging next to him and he put his trust in him. You know, he said, boy, if you're a king and if your kingdom is going to be the way I see you treating your subjects here, I, that's a kingdom I'd like to be a part of. And for Jesus, that was enough. You'll be in my kingdom. Okay, now, and he died. Now, I think had the thief lived on, okay, had he, had he maintained his, his trust in Jesus, there would have been a change in his life, unavoidably. Okay, but our eternal salvation is not dependent on where we are in the healing process. Okay, it is, are we trusting God? Are we in relationship with God? Okay, and, and that's the one thing that had the thief had going for it. Okay, so a medical example here. I actually think the physician-patient model is very helpful for understanding uh, many of these things. Um, let's say you have a patient that comes in to see you for um, progressive headache, fever, stiff neck, and you're seeing the patient in your office, and you can document a fever, and uh, you've decided, boy, it looks like this patient has a meningitis. Okay, now, um, you tell the patient, good news. Okay, I have a remedy for this. Okay, if you come back, I'm going to put you on a medication, which you will need to take. You're going to need to follow my advice very carefully. You need to trust me, and you're going to need to keep follow-up appointments with me so that we make sure that we take care of this whole thing. Okay, now as a patient, wouldn't you be happy if there was something that could actually transform and heal? Okay, would it make sense you would say to your doctor, what kind of legalism is this? Do you mean I have to take medications? You mean I need to trust you? You mean I need to keep appointments with you? Um, no, you wouldn't look at it that way. You would just be happy that there was a remedy for your problem. Alex, you had a question. Okay, so you're talking about the, the thief on the cross and the, the candy apple. Yeah. So I think um, what I would say is that the, the fundamental thing, at least as I understand it, is that we like who God is and that we put our trust in him and that we just come to him with all of our baggage and all of that. That's all the thief on the cross did. Now, again, I think that if we do that and if we really are in that kind of uh, relationship with God, then the change happens. And sometimes it happens fast, sometimes it doesn't. And so I think there would have been a transformation at the cross. Maybe there was right at that moment. Maybe he said, you know what, I admire this kind of self-sacrificial love so much that I'm ready to live that way. You know, so I think, uh, I think sometimes it, it can be uh, very dramatic, but um, it can also, and frequently is just a process. So I don't know, I'm trying to reconcile those two. I'm not saying we become a beautiful, delicious apple overnight. Okay, as soon as we begin to admire who God is. But it, it's a law, and I think we could use a lot of verses in, in the Bible to describe this, that we do become like the God we love, worship, and admire. It, it's like a natural law. Okay, so very important then that our understanding of who God is, is Jesus Christ, that we see down to its core, that's what God is like. And if we love, worship, and admire God is just like Jesus, we can't help but become like him. Okay, and it's again not something the thief would have to work on. Okay, well, it's okay to, in fact, uh, Ephesians says, try to become like God. So there's nothing wrong with that. But God does that within us. We just have to look and admire God and try to imitate him. Kind of like you go on rounds with uh, an attending physician. 
and you're going to be uh, an ENT or urology or whatever. Well, you work with all the different doctors in that area, and you begin to take on characteristics that you admire. You begin to appreciate how this doctor dealt with that situation, and you take that on in your own life. So, again, by beholding, we become changed. That's the key thing. So, kind of getting back to your question again, what do we need to do? Well, it's pretty simple what we need to do. We just need to come. You know, in, in a legal setting, in a legal framework that Jesus was dealing with, he just made it very simple. Come to me, all of you who are tired from carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Remember, the Pharisees, they put loads that are too heavy to bear. Well, just come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke and put it on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirit and you will find rest. For the yoke I will give you is easy and the load I will put on you is light. So again, I would just say, if we're coming to God and if we are trusting God, um, rather than working on my behavior, um, I, I think that as we admire that God is a certain way, as we admire that God loves his enemies, it does become easier myself um, to love my enemies. Okay, so as a bottom line, I would say all God asks is that we come to him, we put our trust in him, God does the rest, and that the process is primarily relational, not legal. So forms of legalism, we've said one is what good work must I do to get to heaven? Another is viewing salvation primarily as a legal transaction, an obsession with my own legal standing before God. And a third one, and this is um, um, something that I think for most of my life, this is actually what I thought. And I think it's a form of legalism. And that is that salvation occurs by knowledge. I'm saved by what I know. Knowing the right doctrines and being a member of the church with the most right doctrines. Now, doctrines, I think, are important. I'm not putting down doctrines. But uh, would it mean that we come to the end of our existence and there's a big exam? Okay, what's your position on the state of the dead? 100 words or less. Uh, what's your position on, um, what could we say, day of worship? Uh, what's your position on hellfire? What's your position on, we could go through a number of doctrines. How many do you have to get right on this test? Doctrines are important. Again, just hear me clearly on this. But um, someone could memorize a list, a pretty good list, right? Not necessarily internalize any of it and say, yep, here's my position on this, 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 and this, and maybe even be right. Okay, but are we saved by knowledge? Are we saved by passing a big exam at the end about different things. Well, here's what's important about doctrines. Um, doctrines are ultimately, um, as I see it, a hedge of protection around our picture of God. What you believe about hell, we could make a doctrine out of that. I think that's very important on our picture of God, isn't it? Um, the state of the dead, all of these different things, they all are like a circular around something in the core, and that is what is God like. Okay, it is a very important protection. So the doctrines are important, but the most important thing is at the center. Okay, what's our picture of God? What is God like? And then I think all of the doctrines naturally flow out of that. But if we don't tie the doctrines into something essential, then they're just isolated points. Okay, and this church has these set of doctrines, this church has these set of doctrines, and we have three or four that are different, and that makes a big distinction. Um, well, the doctrines are important if we unite them to something. 
Okay, and the uniting factor is our picture of God. Doctrines, all of them, as I understand them, have something to say about what God is like. Okay, and so if we see them that way, doctrines become very important. If not, then we kind of imagine that, well, my list is a little better than yours, I'm in better shape than you are. Okay, I have 25 right doctrines, you have 18, what's the right number? You know, that's not the way it works. Doctrines are important for what they say about who God is. Okay, so the last point here, um, you know, Jesus never walked around uh, when he healed someone or talked with someone. Uh, he never sat them down and said, okay, now let's go through the list. First of all, the Trinity. Second, you know, he never went through it. Now make sure you get the right list. Uh, he didn't do it that way. Okay, so that's what, what it was all about. Uh, we, we certainly don't get that from Jesus. What we do get are these repeated parables. And remember, parables are to come out with one or two essential points. We don't make ten points of doctrine out of this. But how many parables end with this? I never knew you. Okay, here's one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, uh, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name and cast out I'm sorry, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And it, it always sounded kind of heartless to me as a, as a child. I never knew you. That's how it's going to end. Some people go to heaven, some people won't. And to those who don't, God will say, I never knew you. Well, this is a parable that is meant to have meaning. And again, what is the core essential meaning? Eternal life is to know God. Jesus is using that theme here. I never knew you means we were never in relationship. We were never friends. Okay, and so this is meant to have a very, very significant meaning. Okay, it isn't, um, you know, you didn't get the list quite right. Uh, it's not anything about that. What really comes down to it is this. What would God say of us? Would God say of each one of us. I know you. We are friends, or will he say, I never knew you? The parable of the, the ten young women, or virgins, ends the same way. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Okay, again, an extremely deep and important meaning there. That's We get right down to the bottom. That's it. That's what it's all about. Um, the parable in Luke 13 about the narrow door. And someone asked him, Sir, are only a few people going to be saved? And he answered, Try hard to enter through the narrow door. I can guarantee that many will try to enter, but they won't succeed. After the homeowner gets up and closes the door, it's too late. You can stand outside, knock at the door, and say, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer you, Again, I don't know who you are. God knows every hair on the head of every individual who is not going to be saved. That's not what it means. And then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will tell you, I don't know who you are. Get away from me, all you evil people. And it's a parable. It's meant to have one or two major points. We don't um, put everything here in a very literal sense. But I think the bottom line is the words here, I don't know who you are, and the meaning, um, the application that that has. Dear Father, uh, once again, for every person here, as we try to uh, struggle to understand what is it that you really desire from each one of us, it does become clear 
uh, that uh, relationship, this very close friendship, is something that you offer and uh, help each one of us to um, accept that into our hearts and minds and um, that we can see you more clearly in everything that we do every day. Amen.